2050 is now here, is the world better off because your company is in it? We are now facing kind of like a final exam for humanity. Can we work together? Welcome to the second renaissance where we decode the rebirth of human creativity in a technology-driven world. In this second season, we explore how sustainability is elevating our human consciousness and catalyzing us to create within constraints. We decipher why now is the biggest entrepreneurial opportunity since the dawn of industrialization and what leaders can do to harness the winds of change. I'm Anders Sormanilsson, global futurist, impact champion and father and your host for the second renaissance. Today, we're speaking with Andrew Winston from Eco Strategies, who's an early pioneer in the field of purpose and profit-driven enterprise. Andrew has written three influential books on business strategy, including the highly regarded The Big Pivot and the best-selling sustainable strategy book of the last 15 years, Green to Gold, which Inc. magazine included on its all-time list of 30 books that every manager should own. He's also written hundreds of articles and publications like Harvard Business Review and MIT Sloan Management Review and consulted with brands like Apple, DuPont, Walmart and Unilever. His latest book is Net Positive, co-authored with the former CEO of Unilever, Paul Polman. Andrew and I sit down for a deep and meaningful on how courageous companies thrive by giving more than they take why the climate goalposts have shifted from 2050 to 2030, the ticking climate clock, and why sustainability is now an innovation catalyst for smart leaders. Thank you for joining us, Andrew. It's good to see you again. I haven't seen you in a long time. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, and I think uh, back to the last time we actually spent some face-to-face time, I believe it was Portugal, Lisbon, 2014, over a a glass of red wine, no doubt. Uh, That seems like a very, very distant past. Ages ago, apparently for you, before even children, right? Like you were in a totally different different place. Um, My kids were much younger. Yeah, it's a different different world. Feels very different now. Yeah, certainly does. The idea of getting onto a plane uh, seems very foreign or very alien these days. Not to think about, of course, all the carbon emissions we we used to emit. I uh, hazard a guess to say that you, like me, were probably carbon offsetting those and and, and avoiding as much travel as we could. Uh, But nonetheless, uh, we're now disseminating ideas um, digitally. I should just, I should kick things off here and just say, you know, we, we sort of paused all of these crazy old ideas like, you know, physically traveling around the world yeah. uh, during the pandemic. Um, what's been your observation now with launching your new book, Net Positive? What have been your observations in terms of the pandemic? Has it, you know, has it accelerated awareness? Has it, you know, decelerated carbon emissions? What's the state of play at the moment? Yeah, I think it's um, it's had a huge impact, really. I mean, obviously, it's it's affected everything, and we're still seeing the ripples. I mean, the pandemic's still going globally in a very real way, and we've seen the ripples. What's going on with supply chains around the world right now is just unbelievable. There's just all these problems, and 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 we've, I think, it's identified a bunch of things that we knew, but but weren't in our kind of wasn't in our face that much, right? Just this idea that we're kind of all connected. Um, I think. Hopefully, we've walked away with more sense of that. I mean, we clearly share one immune system. We've kind of figured that out. But that the connections and the systemic issues we face, are I think the pandemic really brought it to the fore. 
You know, I I think the the last couple of years for business and what it means to be business and a uh, business in society, like the role of business in society, more has changed. I I think in the last two years than in the previous twenty that I've been doing this work. And the pandemic was a major part of it. Other things, you know, got in there. The, the murder of George Floyd in the U.S. rippled into this racial awareness around the world. The Me Too movement, LGBTQ rights, like all these things came together. And I think partly because we were all just sitting around in our homes, watching things and kind of intently thinking about things. You've seen millions of people have decided to take a different path in their career because of this time off. There's a huge shortage in some areas. So, yes, I, I think what's expected of business radically changed. Um, and partly was when the pandemic started, companies had to respond and decide who they were, really. Were they going to start giving stuff away to save lives? Were they going to, you know, guarantee their employees work, help their suppliers and customers, giving them financing? Like these were the things the leaders did and others kind of floundered. Right. Um, but it was a real test, a real test of like, who is the business? Who do you really serve? You know, what are you here for? And I think that's, you know, that's the core of my work, really, kind of the purpose of business and how do you how do you drive business to serve the world? So, I mean, you, you were sort of, you know, you were one of the early ones, I would uh, hazard a guess to say. I mean, certainly, you know, Dr. Seuss and the, and the Lorax <laughs> might have come uh, just before you. But I mean, just before, you, you've been yeah. in this. Yeah, just before. <laughs> I think the Lorax, by the way, turned 50 just uh, a couple of months ago. But, um, you know, you came out with a book, you know, Green to Gold, The Green Recovery, then The Big Pivot. I mean, you you were ahead of the game before this sustainability thing went mainstream, as, as yeah. Forbes magazine called it in, in 2020. Yeah. Um, you must have seen like a, a lunatic greenie back in the day. But today, I think, you know, all the arguments is that, you know, ESG and, and doing well on ESG factors is actually the only sustainable, but also the only profitable way forward. Have you got any reflections on on that. Yeah, I mean, the the 20 years I've been in this, I, it's hard to believe when I say that out loud, it's kind of remarkable to me because I was kind of the young gun in this field when I came out with my first book. I was still in my you know mid-30s and there had been people working on this for decades and I'm, I call some of them mentors and friends now. Um, and the, the business world was still very skeptical, right? I mean, I got into this, I had an MBA and I went back to school to get an environmental degree to kind of marry this interest I had and just how the world worked. It wasn't really from a hug the trees perspective. It was very practical. It kind of still is for me that just the world can't function the way we've been doing it, right? We're And we're seeing the repercussions now. There's not enough stable climate. There's not enough water, air, you know, we have to operate in a different way. And for companies, it was a, they were aware the climate science was there, but it was very much a kind of risk management thing, right? Like, let's just keep the NGOs off our backs. Maybe we have a someone who has a sustainability title, a few, maybe a little bit, but they'll just go and make sure the NGOs are happy. And, you know, it's really just kind of a management of risk. And then, you know, over some years, there was some sense of, hey, there's some innovation opportunities here. We can sell more products. You know, there's there's a way to reach people. And I think the 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 view of how you create value and the ways that sustainability drives that has really expanded. Intangible value is very much on the table, brand value, and that includes your customers um, being loyal. And I think in particular, employees, there's a real buy-in now that if you want to attract and retain talent, especially millennial and Gen Z, you have to have values. You have to stand for something. You have to be tackling climate change and inequality. So it, it's it's on the agenda now. And, and that's a huge victory, right? I think in the last few years, we've gone from 
most being involved to pretty much everybody, right? Every company now has a sustainability report, has some carbon goals, every large company. So we won that first battle, but there's now this tremendous amount of work to do to change the way business functions in a pretty fundamental way and change the trajectory we're on. So I, I am incredibly happy that we're all at the table now, but there's, there's just a, a huge gap between the leading companies and pretty much everyone else. Yeah. Who, who are those leading lights in, uh, you know, this, you know, conscious capitalist, yeah. you know, net positive movement that we're starting to, to witness around the world? Yeah. Well, look, I'm not unbiased in this in part because I just finished this book or the book's coming out. We didn't just finish it um, with Paul Pullman, who was the CEO of Unilever and, you know, has long been considered really one of the leading CEOs in driving a big business towards a sustainable path. Um, but there's surveys of sustainability experts that have been out for a long time. And for 11 straight years, Unilever has been ranked number one. So it's not just just my view. Um, the other companies that show up a lot in those surveys are, you know, some obvious ones, you know, Patagonia, Ikea, um, Natura in the in the you know global south. Um, but most of those that have been leaders for a long time are privately held or family held. You know, it, it's been rarer to see like a Unilever um, considered a leader. And I think there's a growing number of companies. I mean, Walmart has aspects of leadership in laggard, but has been pushing the agenda for a long time. There's companies like DSM, um, Novozymes. There's a whole bunch of, you know, European companies that have kind of picked certain angles on this agenda. And there's, the, you know, the, all the clean tech companies. I mean, Tesla is arguably, you know, one of the greenest companies in the world. So there's, you know, there's a growing group, um, and the tech companies have really come on board pretty profoundly in the last few years. So the most aggressive like carbon goals in the world right now are really Microsoft and Google kind of almost competing head to head on who can set the most aggressive goal for how much carbon they'll take out of the world. So we're seeing new leaders come in, but it's still not broad enough, right? We're in this place where the percentage of companies that has uh, like a, a science-based target, right? A goal for carbon that says we'll reduce at the pace science demands. It's like 20% of the Fortune Global 500. It's better than zero, which it was, you know, five or six years ago, but it's only 20%, right, on this existential challenge that we have where that should be kind of the bare minimum goal that will cut carbon, you know, in half in the next 10 years and completely over the next 30. So we've got a long way to go, right? We're, we're getting there. We're, we're seeing some, some victory, but we're, we've got a long way. I mean, I always find it fascinating, right, that, you know, leaders and organizations are always so focused on, on the numbers and, and the data science and, you know, the evidence and, and all the rest. Yet, you know, sometimes leadership happens in a very sort of anecdotal and, and yeah. emotional uh, fashion because, yeah. you know, we've been doing a lot of work around innovation where, you know, all, all the research, you know, including from BCG shows that, you know, the more diverse your organization right. uh you know, the more revenue you've created over the last three years from products and services that weren't even in existence compared to homogenous organizations. You know, right. the, the amount of, you know, female managers is, you know, closely correlated to the amount of disruptive innovations that your organization is responsible for. And, and of course, now the likes of Larry Fink at BlackRock are pointing out that, you know, ESG is the only way forward. And most of the academic research shows that, you know, companies support, perform well on environmental, yeah. social and governance factors massively outperform their, their peers. So w why on earth <laughs> would companies, you know, be so slow to move on this? 
Well, there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, first, let me just respond to your thing about leadership. I think it's, it's funny how much we believe that companies make decisions completely on science and data, right? When as if CEOs, CFOs are just not human, right? Like we, it's turned out with now decades of behavioral economics, which just completely changed everything I learned in my economics degree 30 years ago, that the people side actually is an enormous part of how we make decisions. There's no difference just because they're leaders of companies, right? We have our cognitive biases. We have a gut. We work backwards from what we think should happen to the data, finding the data that supports that. And I yeah, think yeah. that's partly an answer to why is this still so hard? Because there's inertia. There's the mindset that we've kind of all been brought up in. And we have, frankly, basically 50 years now of neoliberal economics, the kind of Milton Friedman view that shareholder value is all a company should focus on. Um, and, and, you know, Paul, my co-author and I, I, we're not sure that Milton Friedman would actually say the same thing today because the situation has changed. But that was kind of the standard. It was 50 years ago in 1970. He said shareholders only. That mindset is now the dominant form of everybody leading businesses today, right? If you're 70 and under, this has been your entire adult life. And so you feel like anything that you believe is taking you away from that focus is somehow bad for the business. And we're, I think, finally getting companies over that hurdle to realize that they don't just serve shareholders, right? They've been serving stakeholders in many ways all along, and that it's not a very good way to run a business to just say, what's my quarterly profit and not think about innovation, um, your customers, your employees, your communities, like not build a long-term base for success, which you need, right? And so, and we've seen this decline in your, in your world in innovation investment, right? The R&D investment has basically gone down in big companies because they're on this short-term focus. So look, there's just a mindset that we have to get out of um, and, and it, that takes time. Right. I mean, real, real transitions and paradigm shifts, they often don't come till there's a changeover of leadership. Right. I think as millennials come into power in business and government, there will be a natural mindset shift. Unfortunately, with something like climate, we don't have time to wait for that. So we're in this really tense period. Yeah, I was I was curious to ask that question. I mean, the. Um you know, we're hearing a lot about net zero and, and, and 2050 timelines, which to me feels way too far out into the future. It's not that far into the future, but it does feel yeah. a little bit too far away. And then, of course, the uh, IPCC in their most recent report is kind of moving the, 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 the goalposts on this to say, hey, we've got nine years. We've got till 2030 yeah. to, to get this right. What's, what's, what's your perspective? Uh, should we be all having pre-traumatic stress disorder yeah. now and or, or, or just, you know, flip into gear because we, we have the nine, next nine years, or is it, do we have till 2050 to get this right? Well, we don't have till 2050, right? Because the lead time, just in terms of infrastructure, right? if you're talking about energy systems, everything we build today, unless we close it down before the end of its asset life, it's here till 2050. That's what people don't quite realize. Like 2050 is now here. It's within the range of, a, of building a factory or a building of every 30 year mortgage, Right. We're now in that financial and insurance period up till 2050. So the 2050 number, by the way, you're right. It's going to basically start moving forward because it, the science just gets more dire, frankly. And, and, and we keep seeing that the, the climate is changing faster than science predicted, which is not a good sign. 
So I do think, and you'll see the leading companies now, their net zero goals are 2045, 2040. Unilever did 2039 just to kind of be cheeky and try to push the, you know, push the boundary. So it is really critical that we don't just have these long-term 2040, 2050 zero goals. We have to move towards cutting in half by 2030. You need the interim goals, right? And I do think that target for zero will start to move move forward. So, you know, we can't wait. And you see this, I think, especially in some of the goals that are set by the banks, right? They're, they're all now saying we're going to decarbonize our portfolios by 2050. And it's like, that's laughable. That tells me in 2049, you're still going to be funding a plant that lasts another 20 years. Like, they have mm. to decarbonize their investments in the next five, right? And so the pressure is going to build. And I don't know what's going to truly accelerate at the pace we need. We're lucky that the clean economy prices have dropped dramatically. The cost of building solar, wind, batteries, EVs, everything just dropping, dropping. So we're naturally heading that way, but we have to go even faster than that. And that requires systemic thinking, government action, business stepping up, civil society, and all of us as consumers really pushing for a a faster adoption. So... You know, one of the criticisms, I guess, of the, of the of the the green movement and 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 you know more sustainable consumption, consum- you know, conscious consumption, etc., um, has been that you know, you know, organics expensive. You know, you pay more for sustainable. You know, you pay more for something that's built to last. Right. You know, fast fashion is you know there because you know some people can't afford to buy the the gucci bag for example right yeah do you have a you know a counterfactual to this or or, or how do we kind of make sense of you know as consumers right. how do we make sense of of our consumption choices uh, is is sustainable now at a point where um where it is actually more economical maybe both in the short term and, and long term well there's no easy answer to that. I mean, you're right about everything you just said. I mean, years ago, you know, green products were just considered, you know, crappy products, frankly. They weren't as good. I think we're mostly past that. I mean, for lots of reasons. I mean, most products are are good. And something like the rise of EVs and Tesla, like where they're actually better, right? They're sexier, they're faster, they're stronger. You know, like there's plenty of examples of that. But you're not wrong that that there's there's an upfront cost potential. We can't pretend it's win-win in every time frame, but it's often about the life cycle cost of ownership, right? Like it costs more to buy a CFL or LED bulb, but we got better as consumers and in companies selling us products in understanding that the, that the cost of that bulb was actually lower because we would plug it in and spend less over the lifetime. And there's a lot of examples of that. I think, you know, electric cars are reaching that point when you include like maintenance, as in there's none. I have an EV and our maintenance visit was like checking the, the windshield wiper fluid. Like it was, there's nothing to look at. There's no engine. There's no, you know, it's, it's a battery. Um, and so there's a sense, I think, within business of starting to get a, a better understanding of the total life cycle cost of ownership, right? The total life ownership, where then you can see that things are actually cheaper. And, and clothes is a really interesting example. And there's a movement now. Patagonia has been on this for years, but I'm starting to see other big brands talk about making things that last, right? More essentials. If you buy a jacket that lasts basically forever, because Patagonia will repair it indefinitely, that is far better from your cost perspective than buying a jacket every five years because it breaks down. So there is an issue with upfront costs, but it's about, I think, buying smarter, right? And buying better. All that said, 
we, we can't deny that there's a consumption problem. And I think it, it comes down to a consumption problem in which parts of the world. And we talk about this in the book that it's, it's a very real concern that we just use too much. We know that. And so I think the kind of billion richest of the world, we have to have a long, hard look in the mirror <laughs> about our consumption levels because we actually need overall well-being and consumption levels to rise for three, four, five billion people to climb into the middle class, right? They need more food and housing and, and cars and everything. We may need to check our level of consumption and ask about needs and wants, you know, for the richest billion. I think had we started this journey 20 years ago in earnest, we, we could get away with all of us doing fine, but I think we now have, just don't have the time. And so there are plenty of product categories where we can just buy better versions, but for some, I think we've got to ask how much we need. And you, we referenced this at the beginning of the conversation about flying. We're kind of realizing, did we need to fly as much as we did? And I think it's worth questioning. You know? and I, I, so I, I do encourage people to ask kind of tough questions about their own consumption. It's not easy. You know, it's really not easy. Yeah, and then, I mean, the, the, the impact, of course, then of, of creating some signal in the world, which is, you know, both, I'm thinking of someone like my Swedish compatriot, Greta Thunberg, or Greta Thunberg, as yeah. we might say in the anglicized world, yeah. you know, <clears throat> coming up with this terminology or this movement around flight shaming, yeah, which yeah. even pre-pandemic reduced Swedish air travel by, by 4%, yeah. uh, because people felt so bad about flying in response to this, you know, teenage girl who was, you know, creating a groundswell movement, you know, yes, she stood on the, on the shoulders of giants who've come before her. Uh, but it was really, I think, moving to see that movement of yeah. someone communicating both the, you know, the, the science, but also the emotive part of, of the story. Well, she's remarkable. Um, and she's remarkable. Um, I mean, what she's done to bring kids into the streets, you know, she started with just a sign by herself, you know, and a year later, she's the cover of Time Magazine Person of the Year. Like it just, it ballooned um, in a pretty impressive way. So yeah, I think what she's been able to do is remarkable. Do you remember she took a boat to come to the New York Climate Conference and people were like, oh, but that was a footprint and whatever. It was to highlight the fact that there weren't systemic opportunities. There wasn't a plane on biofuels. Because as I just said before about consumption, yeah, we got to check ourselves. But the reality is the idea that we'll just fix this by our own individual you know, consumption choices is kind of ridiculous. We need systemic change so that the options get better and better for us. What I was just saying was in the intermediate period, we should probably dial it back in the richest parts of the world. But we should be demanding systemic change, right? That means what really matters is our vote and who we put in power, you know, so we get things like a carbon price. So everything ripples toward better options for us, you know, mm -hmm. so that we can make the choices more naturally and we don't have to like seek out things that cost a lot more up front or seem like they don't do what they're supposed to. They sh there should be better choices that are cheaper. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, in, in our family, maybe we're, maybe we're, we're lucky, but I guess I, I, I've sort of been brought up on this old school idea that, you know, you buy fewer things and, and, and you buy better. And, um, you know, an example of that would be, you know, in our home, we've got a couple of uh, Miele appliances. Mm -hmm. And of course, Miele is not the, the, the cheapest option, but there's a wonderful story of, of Miele. And by the way, we, we buy factory second. So we actually, we actually save and it actually brings right. back, back the price for us just in terms of the, you know, hip pocket. Um, but there's a wonderful story from Miele in, uh, in the former Eastern Germany 
where a lady who had, um, you know, spent her, her, you know, large portion of her adult life living in, uh, in, uh, I think it was in Dresden in, in, mm. in Eastern Germany. And she needed to buy a new, um, white good for, for her home. And she was 80 years of age. And she walked into the dealership that represented a number of brands. And, and he, he sort of thought, you know, she's 80, you know, she might not be around for forever. Uh, I'm going to try and sell her something, um, you know, a brand that's a bit cheaper because, mm. you know, she doesn't need something that's going to last her 30 years. And she's, she comes into this dealership and she goes, I want a Miele. Hmm. And he's like, oh, well, maybe you don't need a Miele. And she's like, it's the only, it's the only white good I can afford. And he sort of stopped in his tracks and he's like, actually, you're right. She's like, I don't want to buy something that's going to break in five right. years time. I want something that's going to last for 30 years. You're talking about these 30 year horizons, right? Yeah. And a brand that's going to look back and take back and repair uh, and guarantee their goods. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that sort of, which is a really kind of old school mindset that I grew up yeah. with from my, you know, grandparents, very frugal, um, but, you know, if they ever did spend, they bought something that was built to last. And now we have, yeah. you know, planned obsolescence and all these kind of things, which is which is just crazy, right? Yeah, I mean, we have a problem with our technology, right? I mean, like the, I mean, I, I don't really need a new iPhone very frequently, but then the apps stop working, right? <laughs> like you, you, it stops being functional after like four years. Um, and, and this is a problem. I mean, we, we have to figure out how we can slow that turnover, you know, of, of products. And it's, look, it's not easy. Um, there's a lot of benefits of the digitization of everything, right? There's a lot of smaller footprints because of it, but you know, the, the cloud that we all rely on is not very light. It's, you know, they're the biggest energy users in the world now, right? Google and Microsoft. And, and that's why they've been embracing renewable energy so much. They have a huge energy challenge. But this is and and, and I mean just, and just 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 to defend some of our old old, old choices when we did yeah. used to travel around around the world is the fact that you know data centers or the you know the digital carbon footprint is on par with the travel industry absolutely um, so you know yeah. sometimes it doesn't get seen but again here Google and Microsoft are kind of key drivers right of yeah. of even you know climate positive uh, data centers I believe is that is that yeah. right. Well, there, yeah, I mean, there's a few examples of, of companies um, offering kind of a, a, you know, net positive storage where they've offset, you know, but the, the thing that Microsoft and Google are doing, this gets at kind of the philosophy of net, net positive is, um, is they're trying to change the systems that they're a part of, right? Microsoft committed to offset basically all of the carbon they ever emitted since they were founded. It was really the first kind of retroactive neutrality so they're one of the major investors now in carbon sequestration projects, which are still re really small early technologies, but we actually do need to scale them up over the next couple decades. Um, the IPCC, all that data, all that carbon budget, it actually depends on the, the world sequestering a lot of carbon in the second half of the century. Well, like that's built into the models, so we better figure that out. So Microsoft's wow. helping trying to build that market. And then Google, you know, they've set a goal that by 2030, they want their data centers to be powered entirely by green electrons. So you're not offsetting, you're literally only having renewable power, which means solar and wind on site, lots of storage. And if you do plug into a grid, the grid has to be zero carbon. So it's forcing them to work on grid issues, right? They're getting involved in the systemic challenges. That's, that's a, a, you know, a kind of a wonky example of what being net positive means, that you're working on the systemic problems that everybody shares and trying to use your influence and leverage 
to make the change so that everybody's better off and not just go, how can I get solar on my roof, but how do I make solar more broadly available or make the grid entirely green so that everyone in this region can plug in and create no carbon. So you, you mentioned light bulbs a, a moment ago, and you know we've we've gotten better at understanding the, the economics and the you know the planned obsolescence, and you know maybe partly because you know somebody had to get up on the roof or or, or up on a ladder and and change the light bulb every time it it, it broke. And True. some people would say you know the light the light bulb was a really good invention for it's, but it should be called a warm bulb, not a light bulb, <laughs> given uh, <laughs> given all the energy we lose. Um, but you know that that's almost like a nudging behavior for us to kind of go. Mm, maybe that wasn't such a smart idea. Maybe maybe the you know the high tech alternatives are better, even though they cost a little bit more. Uh, you know, are there any analogs or are there any are there any such sort of you know disruption to our ingrained behaviors when you think about say you know EV adoption or right. or uh, moving to solar at home that you could think of that we could design into the system so people start making some of these changes on a, on a, on a sort of, you know, personal or family, family basis. Well, I mean, yeah, you have to, you have to make it's, as you said, the nudge thing, you need the default option to be the, the, the zero carbon. So um, Tesla and their, and their, the solar division, you know, their, of their business, um, you know, has like uh, roof tiles, right. That are solar embedded. You need, we need more and more of those kinds of options where it's just a given. You start from a place of, oh, my roof should generate power, right? <laughs> you just, it should just be that way. Um, and, and there's a lot about how we design cities and how we design the way we live so that the default option is I can walk easily or I can take a, a local bus or, I mean, there, to make it simple day to day actually takes a lot of hard work, right? You need, you need to be thinking in systems and, and create systems that civil society, business and government are all working together on so that the day-to-day -day choices are easier, so that they're the right ones. And look, you know, I was an economist by training. I, I, it's not the only option and it's not as simple as it sounds, but a tax on carbon kind of is the most obvious of the important levers because then innovation ripples around it, right? If you make it more and more expensive to do the high carbon path, you start moving more naturally to the low carbon one. I mean, we, we just need to make these options easier. And um, so, yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of examples of what we can do, but you need the, but there's always infrastructure, anything that's easy for consumers, there's infrastructure behind it, right? And so until we build like charging stations, fast charging stations all over major countries, we'll only see so many EVs. And so there's like a disconnect right now because almost every large auto company is saying they're going to sell only EVs by 2030, 2035, but we don't have the infrastructure to support that. So we're in this weird time where I can't figure out why those companies aren't you know, lobbying heavily for massive public-private investment to put chargers up everywhere. Um, so that's the kind of thing that needs to happen that just takes you know, grunt work, money and grunt work yeah. so, that, so that we can all make the, the easy choice. Well, I mean, on that point, what what systems are you seeing either in, you know, smart cities or in regions or nations where you are seeing, you know, systemic pivots to, you know, a circular economy or towards a system that's, you know, integrated or starting to become fully integrated towards, you know, a clean, clean future? I don't know if there's any real region that's 
dominant in this. I mean, your home territory, Northern Europe, is generally ahead on these kinds of things, common good investments, just, you know, with cities where everyone bikes, even though it's really cold, you know, there's just a cultural and again, structural, right? You build centers of cities where you can only bike, you know, like you just set the rules. The nudge is pretty clear. You bet if you want to get from there to, you know, here to there, you're biking. Um, you know, there's some benefits of autocratic societies. China's done more build out than anybody because they just decide to, right? They have more high speed rail. So you can get between major cities now in, in three or four hours instead of 18 hours. You know, the U.S., with our freedoms, we have zero high speed rail. So there's trade offs, you know, and I'm not mm -hmm. saying, oh, we should have an autocratic leader. We tried that for four years and it was incredibly dangerous and they're still trying, um, you know. So I'm not sure there's any one country doing it right. I mean, there's pockets of like, like Costa Rica is like a really interesting pocket of, you know, investing in the country, going 100% renewable, got rid of their military like 20 years ago, like so they could just focus on human well-being and not spend on on the things that weren't really, really helping them. So there's there's places like that. I think smaller regional cultures that have said this is a really huge part of who we are. But you know, globally, it's really hard to find. Um, you know, I think there's states and cities in the U.S. that are doing better than others and truly invest in this. But it's, you know, it's difficult. Like we said, like we talked about earlier, there's a lot of inertia, you know. And so, yeah, we need some global rules and some national rules to 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 make it easier. And talking about, I mean, rules and, and, and I guess, you know, transparency, disclosure, all of these things that the conscious consumer is now asking, you know, even the likes of Tesla, um, are not disclosing their carbon emissions at the moment. They've been criticized for this. Have, have you got any any perspectives on that? If if Tesla's not, you know, talking about its 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 emissions, um, yeah. you know, why, why why should Chevron or uh, Exxon Mobil, for example, do the same? Look, I, I think trans to me, transparency is one of the grand um, mega forces, you know, mega trends in the world. I think it's only going in one direction. There will be resistance and there'll be some examples, but I just don't see how long that can continue, right? I mean, I I think we're at a point where like at some point like employees will just release the data, you know, for companies that are, you know, that are resisting. You're, you're seeing like employees rising up in companies that weren't quite doing enough like Amazon and changing the behavior. So I, I think it's odd for a Tesla not to, not to share. I mean, Elon Musk, let's he's an odd dude, right? I mean, like he's just got his own take on things. That doesn't always make sense. He was kind of skeptical of the of the pandemic early on, you know, for kind of a science based guy. So I, I don't know what to make of their choices. I think um, mo for the most part, large companies are embracing because they have to a level of transparency because it's being demanded um, and increasingly by investors. Right. The ESG world is demanding information about your materiality. Um, the issues that affect your, you materially and your climate risk, your systemic climate risk as a business. So I don't think you can keep this in for very long. It's just you're, it just reduces trust in your business. And mm. that just can't be good for the company in the long run. Well, well you know, talking about, you know, Wall Street and, and, and disclosures and, and your annual reports, what, what are some of the, you know, if you had to convince a CEO that, you know, shifting towards sustainability was 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 the right thing to do from sort of a you know numbers or a, you know, or even an emotional perspective. You know, what what would be your you know top top three arguments that you know people can use, utilize to say that hey, you know, as a CEO, you 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 know your legacy will be one that's best for all stakeholders, but including shareholders. Importantly, 
Well, I mean, you, you, you touched on a number of them. You can, you can play the moral and legacy card, and I think that matters maybe more than I gave it credit for kind of earlier in my career in this. I really stuck to the green is gold, you know, numbers game. And I've realized, as we talked about earlier, people make decisions on a lot of different things. Um, and leaders who have made this transition and really kind of embraced it. I've talked to plenty, and, and a lot of them, almost all of them, there's some personal story, like their kids talk to them, you know, like or something happened. And it wasn't just the data needed to be there. So they knew there was a business case so they could kind of justify it. But it was personal, really. But but that data needs to be there. And I think the story of, um, you know, why this is good for business has gotten much clearer. You know, you referenced earlier that there's pretty good data now that ESG investments are outperforming. I, I never want to put too much stock in, in investment performance because the stock market is, you know, is much is in many ways a casino. So. Because if in six months the SRI funds do worse, does that mean we shouldn't do it? Like, I just, I never want to say that's the main reason. But there's plenty of evidence now that companies with a long-term perspective, companies that have put stakeholders first, there's lots of different studies showing they outperform in a number of dimensions aside from stock, just their return on equity, their, you know, turnover rates are lower, their engagement rates are higher. There's a whole range of things that make the business case you know, there's just plenty of stories to point to now of companies saving a ton of money through this lens of like, let's get rid of carbon, let's get rid of waste, reducing their risk. And again, driving innovation. That's what people want. They want the top line. And there's really no big, bigger innovation driver than this set of problems, right? We're, we're talking about reshaping how we get around transportation, grids, manufacturing, consumer products, banking. These are like all multi-trillion dollar markets that are going to be changing and are changing. You know, do you want to be a part of the markets of the future or not? I mean, the, the main argument fundamentally is relevance. Do you want to remain relevant as a business where you're playing in the markets that are growing and people want to work for you? I, I don't, you know, I don't think you need to tell them much, much more than that. Yeah, I mean, there, and there's also, of course, you know, the productivity argument, right? You know, and, you know, Andrew McAfee that, you know, yeah. surely from, from MIT talks about, you know, more, more with less. <laughs> and, you know, he'd, he'd quote the example of the iPhone, you know, replacing, you know, 13 oh, different, yeah. you know, ha ha pieces of hardware from a, you know, 1991 Radio Shack ad, you know. <laughs> all of which would have, you know, consumed planetary resources. And now, you know, the iPhone, whether we, whether this planned obsolescence or not, you know, we still trade it in, return all the gold and, 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 and cobalt, et cetera, you know, which gets recycled by Liam or Daisy, the recycling robots. And then, you know, we walk out with, with, with the latest version uh, as part of this sort of circular economy. He also you know, points out that in agriculture, you know, we're using less potash, for example, yeah. uh, for, for higher yields, you know, le less water for, again, you know, bigger gains. Are you seeing that sort of Andrew McAfee, you know, we're getting more productive while treading more lightly on the planet or, or is that sort of tech pixie dust? Is that, well, a, you know, is that a story of where we're headed? There's a little bit of both, right? I mean, like the, the if you, you know, draw out a line of, you know, uh, carbon emissions per GDP, you know, it, it's basically downward. I mean, in, in all developed economies, it's been decoupled, as they say, for the most part in 20 large economies where the economy keeps growing and emissions are kind of flat or, or going down. So clearly, you know, as the technology gets cleaner, there's greater and greater efficiency of carbon. Um, there's no doubt about that. Um, and, and the point is, is well made that the, the iPhone replaces a lot of other things. 
But as we said before, like the, the tech industry is so fascinating because when you see rankings of sustainable companies, all so many of them, the top rank is filled by tech companies because they they apparently or seemingly don't have a big footprint, right? They're not deep industrial and they've they've outsourced all their manufacturing. So it's not in their control. But like, that's just semantics to me. Like if someone else is making all your computers with your label, that's your footprint. It doesn't matter that you don't own the factory. And as, as you said before, like the data centers are now, you know, consuming more power than planes. It, it's, it's not true that technology doesn't have a footprint. You know, they always make a good case in the industry that even if they're 2% of emissions, technology helps us reduce the other 98. And that's a fair point. And I, I think we need, we need AI, we need GPS software. I mean, we need all sorts of technologies to make the world much more efficient. Buildings, transportation, agriculture, and those are all in the works and, and they're all developing pretty quickly. So I, look, I'm a tech optimist too. I'll take the tech and, and figure out the problems with it later. I mean, there's a problem with EVs. We have batteries, no one knows what to do with it, end of life, but there's another opportunity, right? There's, there's a chance for someone to figure out what to do with them or to take them apart or figure out different chemistries. These are all innovation opportunities. Um, mm. You know, we don't, in my mind, we don't like, let's not solve the climate problem because we don't know what to do with batteries. You know, like it's just, there's always going to be new problems with every new sector and every new development. Let's figure them out as we go. I mean, you alluded to supply chain there um, and responsibilities and sort of, you know, greening the, the, the supply chain responsibility to work with partners in a more systemic fashion. You know, we know that the likes of Patagonia instituted this movement towards B Corp yeah. uh, a number of years ago, which is, again, something that I think, you know, is, is trending but becoming a real groundswell movement, certainly in terms of, you know, where we're looking at, you know, um, everything from our, you know, working with our local brewery, <laughs> you know, where I'm spending my beer money. Yeah. Um, you know, they're a B Corp to my superannuation fund is with, you know, Australian ethical. They're, you know, people are starting to make different choices in terms of who they work with. Yeah. Do, do you see this? And of course, you know, B Corps like to work with B Corps. Is that some, you know, is that kind of a movement that you would think is, you know, is future fit or what are the other sort of mechanism for people that have very sort of fragmented supply chains? Yeah. How do we get these things right in terms of the partners we choose to work with? Well, I mean, you're getting at one of the really big forces is kind of business to business pressure. The supply chain pressure is real. It's been there for years, but it's really, it's evolving and maturing. You know, I mean, Walmart's been asking their suppliers to, you know, cut their emissions for 15 years, but you're starting to see companies both carrots and sticks, you know, um, Salesforce introduced something earlier this year that was really fascinating. It was like a contract. They didn't call it a contract, but it looks exactly like a contract with suppliers that they have to meet climate targets. They have to hit, you know, science-based targets. And if they don't, they're in breach, which is a contractual term, and they will charge their suppliers, you know, a fee. They will fine them. Um, on the flip side, Tesco, the big retailer, and Santander, the bank, are offering really good financing terms to suppliers who hit ESG marks. So they're making their businesses um, lower cost. These are the kinds of things, and you're seeing companies just say flat out, our suppliers have to use renewable energy or we won't buy from them. This kind of pressure up the supply chain is you know, incredibly valuable. And it's, it, it is, as you say, companies wanting to work with others that share the same priorities. Because if you're trying to make your business more sustainable for your customers, it has to be along the whole value chain. So you need partners. 
Um, and this is something Unilever did really well for many years, which is to go to suppliers and say, let's be partners instead of us demanding the lowest price all the time. Let's be innovation partners and solve problems for the world and consumers together and, you know, and innovate around, around these needs. And, and they develop much closer relationships and, tr and more trusting relationships. So I do think there's circles of B Corps or companies that are at least committed in the same way, um, you know, th that there will be a better working relationship and they will choose to work with others that really get it because it makes their own goals easier, right? If you're trying to reduce your total value chain footprint and your supplier controls most of it, you want to find a supplier that's efficient and reducing carbon. It's just, you know, it's that simple. Um, mm. Yeah, that demand, that pressure matters and it's and it's changing things. Yeah, and I know, you know, my, my wife is a fashion designer and, 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 and manufacturer and of course, you know, the textile industry is, you know, had a you know, terrible history in terms mm. of its, 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 its carbon footprint. But even, even there, you know, you're looking at the likes of, you know, the Caring Group, which, you know, own Gucci, for example, you know, making real strides into, you know, sustainable, sustainable fashion. And, and it's partly being led by luxury, which I think is, is kind of a, you know, it's actually, it makes sense that a lot of premium brands are, are, are driving this because they realize sustainability and, and profitability, but also sustainability and luxury kind of go hand in hand. It's the whole, you know, built to last thing. Yeah. And um, they're also creating, you know, great resale markets now as well. So, you know, secondhand goods to make sure that those also last. And, you know, they're fighting their own, you know, challenges around, you know, how do we use, um, you know, re, you know, recycled materials? Is that going to be as, you know, is the quality going to be as, you know, as good, et cetera. So they, they still have challenges. But I guess when I look at, you know, Nicole's business and her brand, when they're using a lot of, you know, um, for example, they're, you know, they're responsible for, you know, taking plastics out of the ocean and then turning it into swimwear. And, but even, you know, her, her big wholesale partners like um, matches.com in the UK, which is, a, you know, kind of like a UK equivalent of, of uh, Netta Porter, mm -hmm. um, they're asking all their suppliers, um, all the brands they represent to have, you know, a sustainability statement to, and they started to look into this, you know, supply chain of all of their partners uh, because they realized that, the, you know, the conscious consumer is demanding this. Yeah. Um, you know, we do a lot of work with BMW, for example, on their sustainability initiatives and, and, you know, the research there shows that, you know, 34% of, of people who would in Europe who would drive a, you know, a Tesla, a BMW, a Mercedes, Volkswagen, Audi, would be happy to share, you know, change brands based upon sustainability factors. Yeah. And, and then increasingly, despite the pandemic, where, where everyone thought, we'll just go into survival mode, um, that people are happy to pay a sustainability premium for goods yeah. now. I mean, that's yeah. a huge shift, right? That is a huge shift. I, don't, I mean, it's interesting if you have data to support that because there's been surveys for years saying people will pay more, but a survey saying you'll pay more and actually paying more have been two very different things outside of things like, you know, organic food and, and, and things where people have paid more, but there's a bundle of reasons, right? If they think it's healthier, it's not just for the environment. Um, and they've paid more in theory for cars. Um, but, you know, people pay more for cars for lots of reasons. They buy a regular BMW, you know, because of the status, right? I mean, like we pay more for lots of reasons. Um, EV is now kind of one of them. The fashion industry is really fascinating because in some ways they were one of the early leaders. They, they started the Sustainable Apparel Coalition years ago to try to work with their supply chain. They developed metrics and tools and software, and they were kind of way ahead. 
And then fast fashion really took off and, and it just dwarfed any of the, the work they were doing to reduce footprint because the volume of clothes just started accelerating. And so that, that sector is coming together. You know, Paul Pullman, my co-author has, through his group Imagine has brought together like 25 CEOs of, of fashion companies, worked with them and they signed this fashion pact to agree to, you know, science-based carbon goals. They're working on biodiversity issues because really their impacts are upstream on land where we grow cotton. And, you know, that's where the footprint is. Caring, you mentioned a um, number of years ago, Puma, you know, one of their brands, Puma, did an environmental P&L and said, if we had to pay for the natural services, how much would it cost? And it was basically all their profits. And, and But their footprint, the vast majority was up, upstream, you know, even with all the production and sewing, whatever, it's, it's the growing stuff. Um, and so, you know, the fast fashion is a problem and, and they, you know, there's going to be, I think some leaders who, to turn away from that to longer lasting goods, as we talked about earlier, but it's going to be hard, you know, I mean, fashion isn't, is by definition a, here's the new fashion show this spring, you know, here's the new things to buy. Um, but you'll see some, some companies selling more basics and saying, we just don't need to sell as much. You know, we can give people really solid well, I mean, look, it's funny because, you know, as men, I own some of the same clothes for like 20 years. I mean, like our, our fashion just doesn't change that much. <laughs> it's really targeted at women. So there's a cultural question here about why. Why do they need to constantly change styles? Um, you know, besides lapels and tie widths, how much for men really changes? You know, a button down jeans, khakis, like it's been the same stuff for <laughs> forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. And, um, of course there's also, you know, the right to repair movement right. here. Um, you know, I kind of noticed, I don't know if it's visible in the 4k camera today, but I noticed like a little hole on this, on this da yeah. Danish jumper of mine. It's again, it's built, built to last, but I think may maybe it had been in, in our cabin for a little bit too long and some moths got a, got, got a, got a little nibble, but you know, my, my, again, the, the, the frugal part of me just goes, well, that can be repaired. And mm. luck, luckily I'm, you know, I'm married to a fashion designer. So she knows how to mend a few things or teach me how to do it. And we do that. But, you know, there's, there's so much, you know, that kind of old school uh, wisdom that's been lost um, as people have been, you know, focusing more on, on fast fashion and just, you know, chucking stuff. Mm. Um, but it's changing. Um one thing I wanted to ask you, so if, if the goalposts are, are moving and we're nearly into the time, into the end zone here, if the goalposts are moving from 2050 to 2030, I mean, nine years um, is not a long period of time, particularly when you have kids and, you know, they grow up very, very quickly. You know, say, say we face, you know, apocalypse or climate apocalypse or at least irreversible damage to our environment in the year 2030. If we take a little science fiction trip into the future, a little odyssey uh, and do a pre-mortem, you know, what, what mistakes did we make and, and how can we prevent yeah. them, Andrew? So really, I mean, it's a great question. I, I, I think, well, first of all, just to clarify, when the scientists say, you know, by 2030, you know, we got to cut in half or, or there's trouble, it, nobody has said, or we all die, right? Like there's not one one moment or one number that there's a cliff. What they're saying is, you know, every tenth of a degree, it gets exponentially worse. So we really want to try to hold to 1.5 degrees and try to save low-lying areas, try to save the coral. I mean, there's just some tipping points that we know happen in the two degree range where we're headed very fast. 
But even if we miss it and we get to two, it's worth fighting that we don't go past 2.1. And it's worth fighting, you know, every tenth matters. So it's not like there's a cliff. That said, I do think by 2030, we're going to have a much better view on what stuff is kind of permanently lost. What's what cities, you know, are probably now not going to make it because of sea level rise. Some of this just, you know, vast global inertia that we can't we can't stop. But if we look back and we really didn't move fast enough, I mean, there's going to be a lot of reasons, but one of them we haven't talked about is just the the vast, I mean, vast misinformation campaigns going on on so many topics that keep us from working together. I mean, we are now facing kind of like a final exam for humanity. Can we work together? And we are in this really historic swing to every person for themselves, especially in the U.S., right? My freedom, I don't want to wear a mask. You don't tell me, don't put a price on carbon. We're going to, in some sense, fail because we didn't listen to the science and misinformation reigned and made people think it wasn't that big a deal or it would cost too much or whatever the different denier, you know, ideas are and and that we kind of let them get in the way. Um, and I think the other the other source of failure will be, you know, in that same theme of working together, if we re- try to rely on either government or business or consumers or, or NGOs to do it alone. Like if we think one of those is going to get it done, we have to come together. If we look back and say we didn't really get there, I think it's going to be because we didn't we didn't come together and work on the systems together. Um, that's the only way we're going to move at the pace that we need to. Yeah. I mean, there seems to be this kind of movement towards, you know, you know, regenerative, um, you know, regenerative capitalism, regenerative entrepreneurship, people building, you know, sustainable development goals into their business models and a real sort of creativity within constraints there, which I think is a really heartening story, whether it's, you know, zero co here in Australia, for example, you know, they, again, they're not, they're not unique, but they do it really well here. Uh, You know, they take plastics out of the ocean um, they turn them into refillable, you know, little pods that they send out with all your, you know, home um, cleaning product needs fulfilled or plant based. You have your forever bottle that you refill. You send these yeah. ones back, and you know it's it's carbon offset. You know the story. You got similar things with 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 Loop uh, in America. That's now spreading globally, yeah. uh, working with grocery partners and and and, and major brands. Um, again, it's the old, you know, milkman, <laughs> you know, business yeah. model in a sense. Um, but you know, for, for the, for the modern age, you've got the circular economy with the likes of, you know, Apple's iPhone and they're, they're all sort of looking at, you know, sustainable development goals, um, and actually using it as a, as a, you know, creative catalyst where they're, you know, consuming less resources, getting more productivity, what what sort of you know what what are your heartening stories as we move into you know the final innings here? Yeah. What are your heartening stories that that gives you you hope for the future? Uh, there's a lot of things. I mean, look, you're right. The the sustainable development goals they really have taken off, and and because they're just really well designed, you just look at them. And you're like, oh yeah, that's a that's kind of a business plan for a thriving humanity. There's no hunger. We've tackled climate. There's gender equality. Like it's just the right list, and so it's easy for companies to go, okay, how do we how do we serve these goals? How do we how do we do them? So it gives me hope that, as I said, you know, earlier, that everybody's at the table now, right? Like, because again, we're not going to get there without pretty much everyone. And so there's a bunch of companies that are just getting started, but they're there, right? They're, they're on, they're in the conversation. It's hard not to be hopeful about the clean economy um, in that the price of everything has dropped so fast. 
I mean, there were predictions 10 years ago that solar would be five cents a kilowatt by 2050, and we got there by 2020. I mean, like everything has been, we're not good at exponential understanding, right? As humans, we see things linearly. So there's exponential bad stuff, but there's exponential good stuff. And, and the, mm. the, the clean technology adoption has been, you know, speeding up very, very rapidly. And then, you know, the thing that gives me hope is more on the people side is, is the, the Greta, the Greta's of the world and, and Gen Z and they're pissed off and they should be, and they're demanding more and more. And you see employees push their own companies. You see people talk to their parents and say, what are you doing? What legacy are you, are you leading? I, it, I think the, the pressure is building bottom up and, and it has to. So those things give me, you know, give me hope. I, I think we have some tough challenges. We're not going to get away from this cleanly, right? We waited too long, but I think, we're, you know, we're not the planet. We're not going to all die. Like we're going to, we're going to get there. And there's, there's technology and people reasons that are moving in, you know, in the right direction. Yeah. Fascinating. What um, what questions should I have asked Andrew that I did not ask? Or uh, and then secondly, what should we know about the net positive uh, movement, including about your book, in terms yeah, of how yeah. people can best engage with you moving forward? Well, we dove into so many interesting topics. I never really stepped back and said what net positive kind of means or how we're defining it. So I guess we should have we should have talked about that, but it, it might have become clear as we talked. But the way we're defining net positive, I mean, there's people that say net zero or carbon neutral, and it's really mainly around carbon. We use it and it's, you know, it's not interchangeable, very close to regenerative or, or that idea that, that a business creates well-being for everyone that it touches, you know, through all of its products and services. So every, every product, every factory, every region it operates in and for every stakeholder, employees, consumers, you know, communities, government, you know, everyone that we connect. This is, you know, the North Star. That's the, that's the goal that we, we need to set because we have to move um, we have to move in, in that direction because we have to regenerate. We have to kind of fix some of the problems. So the, the ultimate question we're asking in this book is, you know, is the world better off because your company is in it? And I find myself, you know, as I wrote this and, and thinking about, you know, is the world better off because I'm in it, right? There's this kind of personal element to it that really is, is moving, I find. And people I'm finding as they start to read it and it's starting to get out there, it's hard not to ask that about yourself. Like, am I leading a net positive life? So I, I, I hope people bring themselves to it. You know, we in the book, we start the journey towards a net positive organization really with personal. We have a chapter called How Much Do You Care? Like it's fundamental, you know, it's fundamentally, do you care that the climate's, you know, in serious trouble or that there's a billion people with, you know, living on a few dollars a day? You know, like, do you care about these things and do you want to help solve them? So it is a very personal personal choice. Um, so the, the net positive movement we're hoping to build, I mean, I, I, you know, obviously I want the book to do well, but we're trying to make this the way companies think about their goals. So we have a website, netpositive.world. Um, you can sign up, kind of be part of the movement, get information from us regularly, you know, get the book, obviously, you know, read and understand kind of what we're talking about and just think about how to apply it to your organization and, and to your life. And that's, that's what we're hoping will happen. So, I mean, you're very purpose driven. Maybe a final question here. You know, what, what was the what was that aha moment for you or your own sort of eureka moment where you, you know, tapped into your own purpose or what what, what drives you in, in, in making that, you know, net positive impact on, on, on the world? You know, I, I've always come at this from this kind of practical, really practical perspective, you know, that the model we were, we were on just doesn't work, right? They're just, we're using too much stuff and I want the world to improve. I want it to be better for, for me as I get older. I want it to be better for my kids. 
Um, I, I don't know, I had a value shift, you know, 20 years ago, I was coming out of normal business strategy, biz dev jobs, I was at a dot com and it crashed and it just kind of, it reset everything, right? I think there's these moments where there's a crash or there's a pandemic or where it kind of allows a reset. And you're seeing it with so many people now changing, kind of changing jobs. And I found that moment of, I had been vegetarian for a number of years, I was changing light bulbs and I just it just dawned on me, like I work in business, me changing a light bulb is really not the right scale. Like I, there's gotta be a way to leverage business. So there was this aha. And, and once you start reading about sustainability, the big aha really is that we treat environment or sustainability as some niche in business or some niche in policy when like, the, the economy and, and our society is within the environment. It's not the other way around. Like we only function based on the natural environment. We, we're so disconnected from it in so many ways that it's just very, to me, it's just very practical, right? There's these pillars supporting our society and our economy. And why wouldn't we want those pillars to be stronger, right? So we can be healthier on a healthier planet and the economy can be healthier and we can all thrive. I mean, the, the fundamental driving kind of theme in my work is that Business can't thrive unless people and planet are thriving. They all have to go together. And thriving is to me the, the goal, that everybody has the basics at least and has the chance to thrive and grow um, and, and be you know, everything they can be. I think that's, that's the goal for me, is all eight billion people have a chance to thrive. Yeah, and I think that you know that that critical sense of equity is 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 really part of your story by the sounds of yeah. by the sounds of it as well, and sort yeah. of reminds me that you know the economy is a wholly owned subsidiary of the environment, yeah. and um, that's the line. That's been, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's been great having you on the show. Thank you for for illuminating a, a path into the future, Andrew. And as 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 always, uh, great to hear uh, your future vision. Thank you, and I'm so glad you're picking up sustainability as a big theme. We need everyone and all the, all the smart innovation thinkers like you. So it's great to see. Well, the two go very, very nicely hand in hand as well. So, um, you know, sustainable, you know, or innovations just for the sake of innovation. Yeah. I'm not a believer in, but I am a huge believer in sustainable innovation. So it's been, yeah. it's been, been nice to find that intersection between our worlds. It's great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe to the show in your podcatcher and I'd be super grateful if you leave a review. For more information about the Second Renaissance and our work on sustainable innovation, please visit my website, www.andersumanilson.com. We would appreciate if you can take a moment to share the podcast with a friend or a colleague and help build the movement. We hope that what we learn together on the Second Renaissance can help us all build a sustainable future for ourselves and our children. See you in the near future.